but there's always good work out there. And part of the fun is, quite frankly, looking and discovering new artists. And so money is a, a barrier on some levels, but it's not barrier to being able to live with objects that are unique, objects that are beautiful, and objects that have meaning. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss their passion for collecting. In this episode, we have with us Rodney Miller. Based in New York, Rodney's collection of contemporary art reflects his interest in modern and contemporary African-American and African art of the diaspora. Rodney serves on the Board of Trustees at the Studio Museum Harlem and is on the board of the University of Indiana's Business School. His collection of over 200 works features examples by artists such as Beaufort Delaney, Romare Bearden, Alma Thomas, and Hale Woodruff, alongside contemporary artists including Shanique Smith, Carrie Mae Weems, Glenn Ligon, Odili Donald Odita, and Hank Willis Thomas. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to share our vision for Collect Wisely, in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and through doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of collectors and individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. My name is Sean Kelly, and I have had a gallery in New York since 1991. Each Collect Wisely episode will bring you personal stories from the perspective of an individual collector, where we delve into their passion for collecting, what drives them, and what inspires them. Welcome, Rodney, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to uh, begin our discussion with with uh, asking you how you began collecting. You've mentioned uh, previously that you attended an event at Sotheby's, an auction house, which was a catalyst for your interest in art. How did that come to pass? To be correct, I think it was Sotheby's, but maybe it was Christie's, to be fair. Oh, we're going <laughs> <we're gonna> to name <laughs> check everybody. <laughs> name check everybody. Um, a friend invited me out to an event that just turned out to be an introduction into uh, auctions, if you will. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, like many passions, I just had a good time and my interest was peaked. And then from there, as I'm sure you know, there's just so many interesting people in the art world. You're constantly learning. It's dynamic. Even things you own, the more you look at them, the more you see. So ultimately, that just was a really good fit, quite frankly, for my personality. Although I didn't realize at the time, it just started because it was fun. It's not typical to, to start by going to an auction house. I mean, that's a very atypical thing because, you know, they have that the, the tradition of, you know, you put your hand up in the wrong place and you bought something. You know, it is interesting. I knew who Chuck Close was before I knew who Seurat was. The beauty of it is, though, is the good part is it doesn't matter where you start as long as you're committed to learning and putting some context around things. And quite frankly, that's one of the beauties of contemporary art is that you can often, particularly in a city like New York, engage with the artists. Most of what is being done today, if not everything being done today, is really informed by what goes before it. And so my journey led me that way. So, uh, Do you I like agree. to meet the artists that you collect? I actually do. I am uh, either burdened or blessed, I'm not sure which, but I've never taken an art history or an art appreciation course. And so one of the benefits of meeting the artist is, quite frankly, it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to know what they're thinking about. Studio visits offer some fantastic insight into um, just what goes into a piece. 
And so I actually do like it. Not a requisite. I certainly own art by a lot of artists I've never met, but it has been a real fun and, a, and an upside to being a collector. Was there anybody in your family that collected? What, where do you think the interest came from? The answer is no to the direct question, was anybody in my family a collector? But there were some things, if I think back now to my childhood, that really laid the groundwork for, for collecting. One is, quite frankly, just being open-minded to new ideas. One was having an appreciation that for something that's, quite frankly, not just like you can still be great, and that doesn't diminish you. Another was for having a worldview and continuing to learn. And so there were some tenets like that, as well as, uh, just quite frankly, the concept of being a steward of, for your community, giving back for your community. Those were all good hallmarks. And so art, in many ways, just fits through that. How many years ago was the first piece that you bought? The first, what I characterize as a real painting, early 90s, early to mid 90s. So that's a quarter of a century ago. Yeah. Very different moment in the art world. We were, we were both there. We experienced <laughs> it in different ways. Um, certainly not as much attention being paid to uh, African-American work at that time. It was very overlooked in many respects, uh, part of the community. Was that a focus from the beginning for you? Uh, yes and no. It certainly was a place that I had an affinity for it, but I bought Sala Witt probably around that time as well. Joel Shapiro, right? So it definitely was. But again, I if I had to do it all over again, I probably would buy a lot more abstract art back then than I than I ended up buying. Definitely was a a immediate source of you know, everything from pride and knowledge and respect. But but my collection has never been that literal. And as the collection has developed, has it become more uh, focused on African-American artists? It absolutely, and that I would say is absolutely the case, because in part, just because I view at some point, this is a collection that goes into a museum. I had an opportunity to acquire what, I, what, I, what are museum quality works. And so when I think about that and how it ultimately be, I guess, end up long-term, that just seems to be more of a natural fit. Yeah, I mean, you've you've worked with Thelma Golden, who's a friend of both of ours, an extraordinary individual and the director of. The I'd like studio. to correct you, since this is on tape, I work for Thelma. <laughs> <laughs> she, she tries to correct that, but you and I, you and I know that's yeah. not true. I work no, for Thelma. Nobody corrects Thelma. <laughs> exactly. But she's a great friend, and obviously the the visionary director of the Studio Museum Harlem, and an old friend of both of ours. Has she been somebody who shaped your eye in some way? Or have there been mentors who've shaped your eye? Or was it a very independent vision? No, no, no. There is no question that uh, time spent with Thelma has been almost too hard to describe just how important that is. She has an amazing eye. She has an unbelievable understanding of history. She has an amazing voice for communicating and bridging that gap between the artist and the public. And so uh, I, I definitely listen very, very carefully. In addition, she has also been very successful at attracting, training, and sending out into the world, quite frankly, what I think will be the next great group of curators. And so the resources aren't just limited to her, but her staff and the people that she has around her as well. And then I've been uh, really blessed to just have, quite frankly, good people in galleries like yourself uh, and some of your peers who are also very thoughtful, very giving, willing to have a dialogue around works. And so it's, it's been a collection of things. But no, I am by far from uh, 
by far from a singular point of just my view or just my perspective here. So do you ever sneak off uh, from underneath Thelma's uh, protective wing and, and go AWOL and buy things and then have to admit to them to her? <laughs> uh, I'm going to... My lawyer, on the advice of counsel, on the advice of counsel, I'm going to reply no comment. <laughs> but I think at this point, she's taught me enough to let me do a little bit venturing on my own. Uh, but but the canon of the artist at the Studio Museum is so wide and contains everything. There's also a reality of I just can't own them all either. Yeah, no, I definitely will see something that, uh, and then maybe later see it at the museum. I'll definitely see things in the museum. Uh, I, don't, I try not to limit myself as to where I'm and what inspires me and what I see. You, you spent many years building a, a beautiful house, townhouse in New York City from the ground up. Not an easy task. We also share a passion for sort of modern furniture. So I know you have a very beautiful environment that the art goes into. But with 200 artworks, you're not showing everything at the same time. Not with your sensibility. So uh, you've worked with a number of different curators who, interestingly, who have come in and rehung your house for you. You're living with their vision at a certain point. It may be your choice of art, but it's their vision of what you're living with. It. Can you speak about that? Yeah, that actually, as a, as a matter of fact, I have yet to actually do a, if you will, hang, hang the house myself. Wow. So every time it's been hung and it's coming up on 10 years, there's been some form of a guest curator, if you will. And I think I've lined up a couple for the next two. So it'll be a while before I do it. I think in my case, the, and you're right about one point, probably over a couple hundred works now, uh, the only rule I give them is I don't want it to look too crowded or too jammed together. Uh, the city's crowded enough. You'd like to spare yourself a little of that at home. Uh, but other than that, it's an open palette, and I'm as surprised as often by what goes in as I think some of my visitors to my house are. Have there been specific juxtapositions of, of let's say, historical and contemporary, or different, you know, abstract and representational works in those hangs that have been particularly enriching or surprising to you? Uh, the answer is yes to all of those. There are definitely works that might have been. Uh, come into the collection at different times and it's amazing how well they if you will speak to each other it might be two contemporary artists it might be an artist that's considered more mid-century and contemporary it might be two mid-century artists but if you think about something like MacArthur Binion who's still making work today uh, and someone like Buford Delaney or William H. Johnson who, who quite frankly have passed years ago uh, those works can just, quite frankly, work really well together, but quite frankly can also work with something like a Hank Willis Thomas work or something like that. One of the things if I, my collection doesn't have as much three-dimensional work as I would have liked, and so that's so now I will have a focus to try and probably add a little bit more of that. Uh, it doesn't. It didn't in the early days. I could just never imagine having another space. I didn't buy enough larger works, if you will. So I'd probably be a little bit more predisposed. I'd probably have a period where I was predisposed to adding larger works at the expense of smaller works. And I'm correcting that. That's a good part of the learning process. And really now, in some ways, just looking at what is actually in, in the frame as opposed to a little bit less of the size. I think one of the best purchases I bought last year was a Hervin Anderson piece, and it quite frankly might have been the smallest piece I bought all of last year. By having other curators come in and see how they do it, you're actually right. It continues to expose me to new ways of thinking about things and what might be missing in the collection, what might be nice to add. But you're not 
ready to uh, open up a warehouse somewhere with uh, the Rodney Miller collection in it. You're happy to be I, 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 dealing with the the, the constraints. Of- I, if I hit lotto, we'll talk about that. <laughs> right now, with the cost of New York real estate, we'll go for the we'll go for an annual every nine well, months you might, or so. You hanging. might have to move to Miami. <laughs> I'm to move to Miami or something yeah. like that. The work should be seen, and so I'm always happy to make loans. I'm fortunate that I almost always have anywhere from two to five pieces out on loans because I am a big fan of the work being seen. So there are times where it's a little frustrating just because everything can't be out and be being shared. That's clearly a high class problem. I mean, one of the things that comes up in, in these conversations with collectors who are very passionate about what they do and they almost cannot not do what they do, which is the wonderful thing about it, is this notion that people will say, well, you know, oh, you've got all this wonderful work and I could never do that because I could never afford to do this. But when you started 25 years ago, how much were, you know, how much were you spending on average on a work or how much were things? But, but even I would the answer is I'm not sure, but certainly a much less than what I would, quite frankly, spend now to buy one painting, for example. But there's always good work out there. And part of the fun is, quite frankly, looking and discovering new artists. And so money is a, a barrier on some levels, but it's not barrier to being able to live with objects that are unique, objects that are beautiful, and objects that have meaning. That is in no way, I, I would say that to someone even starting today. And have you, I mean, obviously many of the works have appreciated exponentially, uh, you know, which is always very gratifying, but not the reason why you, why you bought them probably. No, I, am, I have never sold a work of art. Right. So in all my time of collecting, uh, just literally, I've never bought a work despite the appreciation. In fact, so far, the appreciation's hurt me in two ways. My insurance bill is much higher than it was when <laughs> I started. Uh, and artists where I'd like to buy more. I, I, I joked a little bit earlier about wishing I bought some of the more early abstract artists when I was started collecting, whose now prices are just, quite frankly, out of reach, right? Yeah. But... You know, you showed me a beautiful work of art today. So they're still out there. It might take a little bit more research. By a younger artist. By a younger artist. So, no, I don't find, um, I just don't, I don't find that to be a constraint unless you're chasing, just chasing big names, but that's not necessarily what I'm doing. I'd like to ask you, maybe we're going to stray into a little bit of a political arena here, mm-hmm. but I, I, I think it's a really interesting opportunity to ask your opinion about this. I mean, we, we touched on the fact that uh, 25, 28 years ago, there was much less attention for uh, African-American artists, and they were an overlooked part of our community. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing that that, that has been addressed. Where do you think we're at in that arc of really making sure that the platform is is a level playing field for all artists, whether Asian, African-American, within our contemporary culture? I think it's one of those processes that may never end. It certainly won't, probably won't end in my lifetime. But I think the fact that we're having these types of discussions, whether here, whether what the Baltimore Museum of Art is currently doing. So I feel, quite frankly, that there's a fair amount of positive motion by museums, for example, to make their collection relevant to their communities, by uh, collectors of all type to not draw distinctions based in particularly just around race or culture and those things. So more work to be done, absolutely. Will that work always continue to need to be ongoing and be vigilant? Absolutely. 
but we're better, we're much better place, I would say, when I started collecting. If you ask me, I think we'll be in a better place 10 years from now as well. Well, that's interesting because, of course, we're very fortunate to have a great American president, President Obama, recently, and we find ourselves in a very different environment, even though we live in New York City, which is a liberal bubble, and perhaps it doesn't affect us on a daily basis as directly as in many other parts of the country or the world. We find ourselves with a very different uh, presidential approach and a very different president. And for me, that's I feel like we've gone backwards a lot, but you're very optimistic about about where we might be in 10 years' time. Yeah, look, I think the presidency is bigger than the president, and I like to think we are, I'm optimistic we are a country, we are a society, uh, we are a world and global community that can withstand a bad president or two, to be honest. So yes, in, in that regard, certainly not someone I voted for, to be clear. I believe that the good will, if you will, outweigh the bad, that in some ways the negativism and some of the, whether it's misogyny or racism or those things that have come out of this White House are a reminder just of how much work we still have to do and we'll call on people to not be complacent about it. So no, I'm definitely optimistic. That, that again, the, the, the whole is greater than any one person. I mean, I'd love to be in a position where we didn't have to consider a conversation about anybody's ethnicity or their gender. But it seems to me that we're quite away from that currently. And this, this environment is not helping that conversation. But you're optimistic that we will get there one day. Yeah, exactly. I, I think most of us would like to live in a world where that's not the, the issue. We don't, but again, the mere fact uh, that you and I are having this conversation says keeps me optimistic that yeah. we'll get there. Good. Well, let's take it back to what you uh, take it away from the political and back to the personal and uh, take it back to um, why you're passionate about collecting. Could, can you describe what that means to you to be uh, really passionate about collecting or to have a sense of connoisseurship in collecting? You know, quite frankly, that's an excellent question. And I'm going to try, but no promises that I'm actually going to be able to accurately convey what it means. But one of the things it means to me is really an opportunity to, you know, quite frankly, just be a steward, right? I I view myself as temporarily owning these objects, if you will, uh, that I expect their utility, their value, their beauty to outlive me. And so that is certainly one concept that is embodied. Uh, And toward that end, I've become much better about conservatorship of the works that I hold than I would have when I started, because I just think that's an important part of, of, quite frankly, if you will, protecting the beauty. It continues to be, just for me, a fantastic opportunity to learn and grow. And so just because that's something that, if you will, gets my juices going, and that's oftentimes just rereading work about an artist that I might have read before and just seeing it in a new light or actually seeing something in a painting or seeing how someone reacts to it. You know, all those are fantastic ways to continue to just re-energize me around collecting and collections. And quite frankly, the increase in attention and publicity that art is getting right now, you know, is also somewhat pretty gratifying and again, a really good source of both new ideas and new energy. Do you find... It worries me that uh, a lot of that attention is focused on what something sells for um, and, it, and its perceived value in the world. 
and I say very carefully, perceived value in the world, because we know those things change. Does that worry you? Does that concern you? I don't know if worry or concern is the right word. I'm, I'm certainly am aware of it. There's certainly, some people use that as a shorthand for beauty and quality and those sorts of things. Uh, but I think those of us who spend enough time around it know better. And so it certainly doesn't inhibit, if you will, and I don't think it enhances my own enjoyment of the work. Um, again, I think there's an opportunity to um, extend beyond that, and I think that'll happen over time. But uh, worry's not the right word, but it is an area of something that has to be talked about and addressed. You used a word, you just used a word that has come up several times in our conversations for Collect Wisely. And it's very interesting that several people that we've spoken to have used the word steward. It's a very particular word. Could you could you tell me what that means for you? Yeah, for, for me, particularly as related, if you go back 15 years ago for Africans, for, for artists of African-American or, or African or African-American descent, you just knew these were works that belonged in a museum. You knew these were works that should be seen by a wider audience. And the fact that it wasn't happening and I had an opportunity, if you will, to... Uh, to access some of those works and help them be seen and help them be shown, whether through loans or museum gifts or those types of things, uh, that was a big part of the stewardship. So it sounds like you 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 have a very uh, particular sense of a sort of wider cultural responsibility. Absolutely. And that's been there for a while. Absolutely. Is that a cultural responsibility, community responsibility within your community or what you perceived as your community, whether it's the art world or the African-American collectors? I, I think I think all of those things. I, I really do. I think it's all those things, and there's because there's no reason to limit it. And uh, the world is flat, so the, every community is becoming a little closer to other communities, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. In some ways, and so I think it all it all fits in in that in that way as well. So something else I want to ask you about very specifically is the sense that there at certain moments there are sort of orthodoxies right within within the collecting community if somebody you know somebody sells for an awful lot of money suddenly there's a lot of attention paid to it and that orthodoxy is perceived as having value but history sorts through a lot of that for us and you know i would almost defy anybody to name the most successful painter of the victorian era because he's somebody we don't know anymore uh, and he was making way more, way more money than all the people we do know. What do you think about how those orthodoxies get sorted out over time? Uh, when I first started collecting, I went to some uh, event at, at some very generous person's house, and um, they proclaimed to a group of relatively new young people uh, that painting was dead and don't buy any paintings. And if I think about the works that I own today, that if, that if I could only keep three or five or ten probably all paintings, right? So that's what I think of the orthodoxy. Made post that dinner. <laughs> Made post that dinner. Um, and so that's what I think of, that's what I think of the orthodoxy. That it is like all messages, one that's certainly worth listening to, uh, but I personally, I look at it and say, do I agree with that? And that's the beauty of what art allows us to do. It allows us to look at it, examine it, and quite frankly, have a different view. So I'm not blind to them. Uh, in part because I want to buy work and if something costs more, I have to factor that in. But I don't 
established necessarily an aesthetic value. You know, there's some very expensive works that quite frankly, I don't like or don't fit me or don't fit my collection. There's some very expensive works where I wish I could afford them and do. So it's one factor, but not the only one for me. But but I, I listen to the orthodoxy. I'm just not a slave to it. At any point in your collecting trajectory, have you bought a work because you thought it would uh, increase in value? The answer to that is yes, right? I, I could, you know, when I, uh, to give one example, uh, and again, I'm just never sold a work. Jack Whitten, who just recently passed, his work was ridiculously inexpensive for who he was as a painter, who he was as a teacher of other artists. And so it was a real easy purchase decision once you love the work. And I own more than I probably should, having come to him so late. So yes, it's a, it is indeed a factor, just like there are artists where I wish I'd known about them sooner because the market is arguably caught up with where their value is and there's just not something now where I can put money on. But that's slightly different to my question because you use the word that you love, you know, you spoke about loving the work. So clearly there was connection with the work anyway. So it wasn't just a Yeah, no, have I ever investment. bought a work because I think it's going to go up in value and I can yeah. sell it? Not me. No, I don't think so. No. Uh, so you know, you know, you didn't buy a Gerhard Richter because you got a good deal on it and it didn't fit the collection? No. And you were going to sell it later? No. I've never done that. Not, a, not opposed to people who do that. If I were smarter, I probably would, but I have never done that. Do you actually think of yourself as a collector? Yeah, I do. I, I, will, I will describe my... If somebody asks me what I do for fun, one of the, I'll say one of my favorite leisure pursuits is, is I'm an art collector. Right. Because certain people I've talked to have said, oh, I don't like the word collector. You know, that, that is a negative connotation. So what do they call themselves? Uh, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure. We've danced around that subject quite a lot. But it's interesting to see how people react to the word collector. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure if I didn't call myself an art collector. I'm not sure what other phrase I would use. So I could be intellectual laziness on my part in that it just sort of fits. Uh, but I certainly am not a... I don't find anything offensive about the con about the connotation of it and certainly do you collect in other areas apart from contemporary art i do wine would be the other area i probably uh, have uh, i know i should have you for dinner yeah because no i'm not drinking it anywhere near fast i enough. i can help you with that problem <laughs> but you'd have to come and help it's, me it's, with it's, that problem it's, too. it's a deal <laughs> uh, so yeah definitely wine um few pieces of furniture but with the few exceptions the furniture for the most part is really being lived with so i'm not sure how that will how that fares over time as a um you know, as a collectible piece if you will but but the art's being lived with too and the wine's being uh, drunk so you're, you're a collector in those areas <laughs> I'm a collector well. in those areas yeah again but similar to your question before i i have a nakashima desk in my house and when I sit down to pay bills, that's where I sit down and do it. I don't treat it as a work of art that can't be used. Well, if you've got to sit down and do the unpleasant task of paying bills, that's a very nice uh, it is, place to do it. It from. is a very nice place. What, what's your favorite wine that you're drinking at the moment? Mm, tough question. It's like kids. I tend to be one who's rarely will have a glass of wine just to have a glass of wine. I almost always have wine with food. So it's generally going to be driven... Uh, by what I'm eating. I'm probably more old world than new world. But last weekend were two old world wines, 97 Plump Jack and maybe 03 Marcuson uh, um, Blue Ridge. 
You definitely have to have me over. <laughs> we will make that happen, Sean. Okay, very good. If you had the opportunity to look back 25 years, 25 odd years, uh, and give your younger self some good advice, knowing what you know now, and all the, the interesting characters, as you put it, that you know in the art world, what would that advice be? Buy more. Buy more? Buy more. Wow, music to my ears. Yeah, buy more. Okay, how would you achieve that if you were on a if you were on a limited income and starting out? Again, I think starve. <laughs> Start. Well, first of all, I could it would not hurt me to miss a meal or two. So there's a lot of people that would be very pro that. Um, look, I, I, I think one of the benefits we're in New York City, and it definitely has benefits because of the rich talent. The studio visits back there with with more artists would have not necessarily been that much more expensive, quite frankly, because we were both starving at the time. And so there, there are ways it would have been around it. It would have speeded up my learning curve, right? Every purchase, if in my opinion, if done correctly, comes with a bit of education. Where does this work fit within the artist's career? What does it say about where they've been? What does it say about where they're going? Who are their influences? So if I bought more, didn't have to be dramatically more. But if I bought more, it would I think it would have speeded up my education. I think in the early days of my career, I'd buy something and in, in many ways just fall in love with it and live with it. And I think that was oftentimes at the exclusion of branching out and looking at and doing more. More museum visits when I was younger, right? I, I would, so if I had two things, it'd be buy more and quite frankly, see more, whether yeah. studio visits or museums. Do you think the activity, I mean, several people we've spoken to have talked about educating their eye, which is something we all talk about all the time. And, you know, that's clearly the way forward. You, you know, look and look and look. But do you think the activity of actually purchasing the art sharpens your decision making? It certainly does mine. It absolutely does mine. Because it just, it forces you in a decision mode. Uh, whereas at times when I'm in a museum, I saw Agnes Martin's retrospective three times. I saw it in London, New York, and Germany. And it was a different show all three times, I in part because yeah. the venues were so different. Yeah. So I think that when you purchase something, it really does force you to look at it and think about it in a way, particularly an artist that I'm not particularly familiar with. So an artist where I see a lot of their work, maybe not, but in an artist where um, it's a relatively new artist for me or I'm not as familiar with it, it absolutely does in my case. You've mentioned twice studio visits. Um, how were you getting access to the studios at that time? Was somebody taking you or were you I, hearing about I things? Used to be, I used to be more spry and I'd just sneak in. Now that I'm older and slow, it's a little bit less of that. Uh, it's everything from... I'd hardly describe you as old or <laughs> slow, exactly. Rondi. It's, it's, it's everything. It's no set, no set view. Certainly the museum and being on the acquisition committee and the board has been a part of it certainly but that's recent you weren't you weren't there at the beginning again that but i probably have been on the board i'm but i'm getting close to 15 years okay. or so on the board so it's it's not longer well, let's talk about the first 13 right. years so um so it's definitely that it's definitely again just a function of being in new york and seeing something you like and quite frankly Particularly, it was a little bit harder. There was no Instagram or Facebook. Just you know, artists were quite frankly 
generally pretty receptive if you went through the trouble of tracking them down and asking them about their work. And it wasn't always about just buying. I would, I might go to a studio. There are artists who I've been to their studio many times, but still bought the work through a gallery. Mm -hmm. So it, it just wasn't necessarily about buying. For me, it was about spending time with the artists, learning, because that informed it. That informs your ability to, quite frankly, see better, if you will. 28 years ago, everybody went to the galleries on the weekend. I mean, it was, you know, everybody was visiting the galleries. Everybody now is talking about, certainly within the art community, is talking about there being a kind of crisis that's occurring in the market for galleries and, you know, because of art fairs. And they're looking for, they're looking for the reason why that's happening. I, I don't think it's as simple as, as being, you know, that everybody switched to art fairs. I think there's the internet, there's all sorts of ways of getting information now that didn't exist then. Can you t tell me, I mean, you know, do you go to galleries as much as you used to? What's changed? I would say, I, I would start with questioning the opening the opening statement of everybody was going to galleries 28 years ago. I, I actually think galleries were more exclusive 28 years ago than they are today. And I actually think it's much easier now to walk in a gallery as an untrained person, not a collector, if you will, and quite frankly, be treated and received well. I think you guys have always done that with me. I think there are others of your, what I would put in that category. But there are some even now today when I go in, even though I own their artists, that quite frankly, aren't very welcoming by any stretch of the imagination. So I do think there's some culpability on the part of some galleries no that, that have done that. That being said, you're absolutely right. Everything from, you know, the internet to fairs. Personally, I like fairs to see a lot of work. It's probably been a few years since, and I go. I, I, I track all the fairs. I travel a lot for business. And on the margin, if I can be in a city when the fair is there, I try to do that because it's such a great opportunity to see a lot of work in a day or two. And I do think that in some ways stops me from maybe doing more Saturday visits in the galleries. But if you're smart, you're still doing all of them, right? Doesn't preclude you from looking online, doesn't preclude you from visiting galleries, and it doesn't preclude you from going to fairs. So I do all three, but it, but I, I would guess that there are some people who are only doing fairs or only doing one another. I think that's a, you miss a lot if you do that is the problem, in my opinion. So from your point of view as a collector, I mean, do you see a future where, you know, the idea of a bricks and mortar gallery is no longer necessary? The answer is yes, but I, to, it's... That's not very optimistic for us. The, the answer is yes, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a less enriching future probably, unless we get, unless technology improves. Look, at some point, I guess, technology will improve to a sense where you can mirror the gallery experience, but again, I'm not sure that's in my lifetime, but in terms of just viewing the art, right, not the interaction. There's been attempts at that. There have been virtual art fairs launched. There have been all sorts of attempts at it. But it, there is no substitute for standing in front of the object. Yeah, and I'm talking about a technology that doesn't exist, right. where you can really get a tactile sense of the work. Right. Look, for me personally, just to, if an artist that I know really well, I can look at a JPEG and have a view as to whether I like the work or want to buy the work. But if it's an artist I don't know well, the number of times even I'm so genuinely surprised between what I thought I saw, what I saw on the screen, and what I see when I actually see the work in person is just dramatic. And so I'm talking about a technology shift that 
deals with that that just that's just not in the near-term offing for everything from screen quality to you name it. So you're going to remain a dedicated gallery, fair, and uh, studio visitor. And galleries, though, right? Um, I, again, I and opportunities to go to people's houses and see their collections, and there's a whole host of things like that. Look, there's a real community, and I'm I'm as often pleased when I get an email from a friend or a curator. Uh, or a gallery owner. I, I, I was at Freeze and a, another a gallery owner sent me a email of something they saw at 154. They said, you know what? I don't know a lot about your collection, but I saw this and I thought of you. And it turned out to be a really beautiful work that I ended up buying. Mm. So that sense of community is hard to replicate if you don't leave your home and only look at a screen. And, and I that doesn't mean there won't be people that will do that. Yeah, I, I would argue doesn't would, fit me. I would argue at this point it's impossible. Uh, so to know, do well, certainly. Yeah, yeah, because otherwise you're going to end up with a collection that has no soul, basically. It's probably a very. I'd have to agree with that assessment. Within the collection, have you got artworks that you bought that you really regret having purchased? Very good question, and the answer is no. I actually wow. don't think I do. Actually, uh, I'm pretty good at editing before the purchase. It's a really good question, and to be fair, I might own one or two works I don't remember owning, <laughs> but I don't That's think one I, way that is. exactly. But I don't <laughs> think I do actually. I don't think I do. It's been really fun to sit down with you and talk about this and stray into some other areas. I feel like I've well. wandered all around, so hopefully, no, no. You, hopefully you can fix this in editing. No, no, uh, we're not. We're not going to edit a thing. <laughs> oh, it's been it's been it's been fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I think we should have spent more more time talking about wine, but we can, we can do that off. We, <laughs> we can do, do that. that. Yeah. So one last question for you. Um, if you had the ability to only uh, to live with one artwork, not from your own collection, from any period in history, anything that would enrich you and feed you for, for the rest of your life, and you could only have one artwork, what would that one artwork be? A recent Julie Moretto painting. Oh, okay. Which I don't, I works by Julie, but no paintings. Do you own it? Or? I do not. I have no paintings by Julie. Oh, Wow, interesting choice. But if I could pick one thing. And where, where did you see it and where is it? Is it in a museum or is it a show? Or? Museum. Okay. Yeah. Which museum? St. Louis Museum of Arts. Ah, right, yeah. fantastic. It's beautiful work. It, um, very, in her case, very, I think a very good bridge from her earlier work to where she is today. It is textured and I'll say even deep if you will in the context of the mm. meaning and the more things you can you, you see in it every time you look at it so much of her work is so oversized this one's probably only eight feet so I think I get fitted in my house but if I had to just pick one thing which thankfully I don't that might be what I think <laughs> so if it goes missing we, 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 we'll, we'll know where to find no it no comment this is my second no comment of this interview uh, Elton John said something wonderful once uh, he said he hates going to be museums because he can't buy anything and I've always thought that was a wonderful in a way it's a kind of you know it's a wonderful de definition of a collector it's frustrating going to an institution where you see things that he can't acquire I've, I had a period where I was going to museums a lot so I wouldn't buy anything so I can completely relate so you, to that you and Elton could go to museums together and you'd fulfill each other's exactly. frustrations so well, Rodney, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down with you and thank you for sharing uh, your passion for collecting and uh, your trajectory uh, in doing it. We look forward to uh, watching the continuation of that in the future. Thank you so Again, much. Again, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you and uh, be able to do dinner soon.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at SeanKellyNY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers. Thank you.